According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, you have the cameras up and running, so if someone comes in, we'll see him. Okay. Matthew chapter 12 this morning, Matthew 12. We will also flip back and forth to Luke 11 periodically, but we will try to stay mainly in uh, Matthew 12. I drove off this morning leaving all my paper notes on the desk, so I'll just teach without notes. I have a slideshow to follow. But I don't like just using the slideshow. With paper notes, you can kind of see what's coming up down the, down the road, so to speak. All right. You're aware of who's in the hallway, correct? All right. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your patience with each one of us day by day, with each passing moment. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study this morning, that our coming together would be for the better and not for the worse. Father, that we would be here for the right reasons to glorify our Savior. And Father, uh, we just leave ourselves in your hand of mercy and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is new material this morning, moving on to episode 25 in the Galilean ministry. Episode 25... We wrapped up episode 24 as we dealt with, let me get to my right page here, the accusations of blasphemy where Jesus had cast out a demon uh, resulting in a man that uh, had been mute, uh, being able to speak, and then the critics who uh, are not going to find a nice thing to say about Jesus for any reason whatsoever, even if he does a good thing. Uh, they won't even acknowledge the good thing that he did, but rather find ways to accuse even those good things of being done in a bad way, which is why they would accuse him of only doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. And we uh, spent some time looking at Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, and the things that we dealt with there. As we move on to verses 38 and following now, we read in Matthew 12:38, And then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the I hate the term sea monster, but we'll go with it, three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That principle is then repeated with another illustration, not just Nineveh, but the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And we'll stop there. There are other issues, demonic issues, that we'll deal with in verses 43 through 45 that talk about the blessings of being released from demonism and uh, the second chance that a person gets, so to speak, when they're freed from those impulses, but then the estate which is worse than the first, when rather than utilizing their freedom as an opportunity to embrace God's Word and to grow and to thrive and so forth, they end up plunging back 
into systems of darkness. And that cycle is, is uh, it's a horrible cycle because it's an in and out, up and down kind of cycle. And the sad part is, is that each time you plunge into it, it's darker and deeper and harder than the previous time. And as we recently studied with the sin and the death, there is a final time in which God permits you to plunge into that darkness. And because with that final plunging into darkness, the only exit from that is the administration of the sin and the death, the physical death, departure, and as a believer in shame is recalled home. And uh, so we'll have a lot to deal with that when we get into the demonism of verses 43 through 45. I don't anticipate we'll get that far this morning. All right, backing up now to verse 38, we get some preliminary introductions here. Now, I was just uh, struck as I read it, uh, the insulting nature of the title teacher. You know, there's there's ways in which someone uh, could call him teacher and not be insulting. For instance, that was a common title, rabbi or rabboni or some of these terms that Mary would use or her sister Martha would use or others would use. But coming as it is from these guys, from the scribes and Pharisees, it is rather insulting because they are basically approaching him on a peer basis. In other words, they are also teachers. They, uh, they command tremendous respect. They demand tremendous respect from others that they view as being inferior to their scholarship, inferior to their education, their schooling, and all that. And so there's even a, uh, a sense of insult here by the way that they address him. Well, let's look at it. This, again, the title is Jesus' Answer to a Demand for a Sign. If you have one of the oldest of oldest of harmonies of the gospel, there's a typo there. Jesus answers to a demand for a sing. But I think we, we fixed that typo about three editions ago on the, on the uh, harmony of the gospel chart. First of all, the scribes and Pharisees set the table. The previous message, the table was set by the miracle that he'd done. This one, the, mes- the, the message is set by the questions or the demands that are then offered. The scribes and Pharisees set the table for Jesus' next message when they asked him to manifest a sign for their viewing. This was at their impulse, their request, and he responds to that request by launching into a Bible class that really accurately details a lot of good information here in particular, why or what the motivation is behind this lust, this desire for a sign, craving a sign, we're told in verse 39. So the table is set. And again, we find an instance, whether it was the woman that came to anoint his feet, whether it was the uh, casting out of the demon, how they accused him of of using the power of Beelzebub, or here, where they want to see a sign, he's able to use that as an open door to turn that to an occasion in which a Bible class can be taught. We studied that also in our pastor's ministry workshop when we described what Larry Moyer wrote about uh, how to turn a conversation to spiritual matters, how to turn a conversation to the things of the Lord that would then open a door for a gospel opportunity. And uh, it was great material that, that Larry Moyers had written on, and we see it illustrated time and time again here. So the, the scribes and Pharisees are actually setting the table for this particular meal. Of course, the Lord's the one that's serving up the meal, Bible class being referred to as a meal, but they are actually setting the table. And that's one that we try to do around here occasionally. People ask, well, why don't we do such and such? Why do we do such and such? I'm asked, do you have a a singles group? Do you have a a college class and things like that? And we have the opportunity to say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Here's here's what the Word of God has to say. All right. 
as we look at it, not only from the standpoint of Matthew 12, because he's going to answer them, and he, uh, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And the answer is rather confrontational and rather dismissive. And we'll see that. We'll see why. He's very accurate in describing them as evil and adulterous. Um, and he has reason to reject that. But it's, it's interesting. When we go over to Luke now, in Luke 11, we see that this was not just a single time asking for a sign, but this was something that they were repeatedly doing. Come on, give us a sign. Come on, do something else. Come on, do something better. And it strikes us as as nonsensical because he's just been doing a number of signs, including casting out a demon, including other things that he's been doing here. And so the repeated request for a sign uh, brings us to understand pretty quickly that they weren't going to be satisfied with anything because every demand they made to give them a sign, they say, well, now give us another one. And uh, and we see that. All right, Luke 11, verse 29 starts our parallel account. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, that is, it craves or lusts after a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. And a very similar message there. If you back up to verse 16, you realize that even prior to this, back during the incident where they were accusing him of using uh, Beelzebul's name to cast out demons, uh, they were demanding a sign from him. In verse 16, we're told others to test him, to tempt him, to Perazzo, bring about his downfall, uh, to snare him. They were demanding of him a sign from heaven. At what point does a request become a demand? At what point? I mean, it, maybe it's a fine line or it's a short step, perhaps, but where you can go in a very short order of business from a request that might be very legitimate to a demand which is entirely inappropriate because demands are made of those that are under your authority. Requests are made of those that are over you in authority. And uh, humble requests, petitions, are made for those that are not only over you in authority but those that you have no right to approach in the first place. And uh, I think we've got to keep the, keep the priority straight when we, when we look at this. So they're requesting a sign or they're demanding a sign uh, they're seeking, but really it's a lust pattern. And I like the Matthew translation best of all, craving a sign, craving a sign. And we talk about that also and the difference between wanting something and craving something. The idea of, of any addiction pattern, are you controlling it or is it controlling you? And is this something you want or something you need um, really becomes quite interesting. A, a God-fearing Jew has no problem seeking signs because he's humble to the Word of God. He's he's viewing the the evidence in light with Scripture, and it's it's in the proper sense the signs are appropriate. I'm going to talk about that. Jesus Christ Himself was sent to produce those signs in order that His message would have the uh, the imprint of His divine message. We'll see that also coming up. I'm not sure what slide it's coming up on because I don't have paper to look at this morning. But it is on the slideshow, so it is coming up. All right. So we have hostility, and he doesn't back down from it. He uses it. He turns it. He, he throws it right back at them. And they can take the Word of God or they can leave the Word of God. See? And that's what it comes down to. All right. Now, under this, what they're looking for is a sign. And there's uh, even non-Greek students ought to have about a dozen or two dozen terms that they make use of, even if they have no intention of studying the language. I don't know that Semeon makes the short list, but maybe it ought to. Semeon, 
S-E-M-E-I-O-N. And you're going to get very uh, familiar with Simeon for signs. Um, part of uh, what we'll be dealing with in our First Corinthians series as we talk about spiritual gifts and the, the signs and wonders crowd, those that think that miracles are necessary to prove your your uh, legitimate spiritual walk and things like that. So we're going to touch on these issues in a number of different series. Obviously, it's going to come up in the spiritual gifts of our uh, passage of our First Corinthians series, and it's going to come up big time and already has been in Daniel and Revelation. So we're going to hit these areas here repeatedly. But it's not just it's not the the term semeon as a token, an indicator highlights the what it means the significance of what's happening more so than the power of what's happening we've got other terms like dunamis and ergates works of power you know if you raise somebody from the dead that's a work of power and when you have a word like dunamis or ergates or, or those type of words energia those words emphasize the power involved and obviously it takes god's kind of power to bring somebody back from the dead and other you know, walking on water and calming the waves and so forth. But when the term semeon is employed, while we're not denying that there's divine energy at work, what we're highlighting is the fact is that this is an indicator. It's a token. It's a sign. It, it means that, that there's a message being communicated and we need to pay attention to the message. All right? That's the impact of the term semeon, that it is a token a sign, an indication, it's a, it's a mark. It's, it's like um, somebody's tell, if you, I don't gamble, but uh, you, these shows, they, they show these world championship of poker things and, and, and other things. And if someone's at a table and, and he develops a twitch and, and he always you know, scratches his eye when he's bluffing, well, that's a clue. That's a sign. It's a semeon. It's a token. And he's, he's betting up a storm and he's acting all confident, but he keeps scratching that left eyebrow. You might pick up on that and say, you know what, that's a tell. In the gambling terms, they call it a tell. But we would call that a sign, a token, a semeon. All right? And if he's betting all kinds of money, but he's rubbing that left eye, we can have some confidence. Uh, next hand, if he's betting a bunch of money and he's going nowhere near that left eye, then we think, aha, okay, he really does have a good hand. And we can back off and live to play another day okay that's just in an illustration of i have no realm that touches on that illustration i don't gamble i've just read books all right but a semeon is a sign is a token and the 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 reality is it's not the sign that's the big deal you should be paying attention to it's the fact that here is a legitimate prophet sent from god the father who has a message to deliver and we're accountable to listen to that message so it's used 77 times. We had a drill sergeant that would use, he was from the hills of Kentucky, and he uh, that was one of his favorite phrases. He talked about that's an indicator. You know, he'd look at you and he'd say, "Now that's an indicator." You know, when if uh, if if explosions are going off and and bullets are being shot at you, he'd say, "That's an indicator." You know, you're supposed to get down. You need to get in a foxhole or something. You know. And he was the one that taught us how to throw hand grenades. And he was the most perfect drill sergeant to teach you how to throw hand grenades because he made it real clear when he'd say, now that's an indicator. You know, you pull the pin out and you toss the spoon. This thing's going to explode and there's no way to stop it. You will not get the pin back in. So throw it. Anyway, he, that was his phrase was, that's an indicator. That's an indicator. I'll never forget this man. He's about 110 years old and that was 20 years ago. So I'm sure he's with the Lord now. But um, he always used that phrase, that's an indicator. 
And it's a phrase I've never forgotten because it, it, or think of it every time I come across the word semeon. Because semeon, that's an indicator. It means that God has sent this messenger and you better pay attention to not the things he's doing, but the content of the message that he's delivering. Because that's where the real impact lies. Now, they, they ask to behold a sign. We want to see. We want to behold a sign from you. And their desire, the fellow, we desire, we want. What do they want? They want to behold. Now, this one may not be as interesting, but I find it to be a remarkable study. To uh, the, the infinitive is idain. And Bob's probably the only one that really cares about any of this. The infinitive is a Dane. We want to see, we want to behold. You know, it's always interesting. If a local church gets so wrapped up on what they see, <laughs> you know, the entertainment, uh, the decorations, the beautiful building, the wonderful production, if they're caught up in what they're seeing and they're not paying attention to what they're hearing, that's idolatry. If they're not paying attention to the message that's being delivered, it says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It doesn't say, you know, he that has an eye, be impressed with how glorious the building program is or the entertainment is or all the other uh, productions that take place. The idea of beholding, seeing, entertainment is all caught up in the concept of, uh, of idolatry. Now, it's interesting. Edain is the aorist active infinitive of a, of a verb we don't use in the present tense, but the verb is edon. Edon, E-I-D-O-N. And edain is the infinitive of edon. We don't use edon in the present tense. Edon kind of becomes a helping word. Edon is used when the verb horao needs an aorist. Horao. Now, that's our word to see. We want to see. You realize that if, if it's something worth seeing, people will pay money for it. <laughs> if you think about, in every hurricane season, I want to know why do they build those houses right down there on the coast? Why do they build all those houses right there on the tip of Florida and all these coasts and hurricanes come sweeping through and they've got to rebuild every time a hurricane destroys everything? It's because of the horizon, because of the horao, the view, what they can see when hurricanes aren't destroying everything, <laughs> all right? And it's top dollar prime real estate because of the, the view, okay? Go on a cruise ship, you've got the outer cabins and the inner cabins, right? Which are the ones that you pay more for? <laughs> the outer cabins, the ones with a view. If you want a balcony or a window or you want to look out and see the water and the scenery and all that, you're going to pay for it. The inner cabins on the other side of the hallway that don't have those views, well, that's the, that's the bargain cruise. All right? Now, hurrah, we want to see. We want to behold. We want to experience. It's all about what they can see. And there's some interesting... And, and grammatically, it's just for word geeks, this is, uh, this is really exciting. Because... Uh, horao is the verb to see, to look at, like horizon, and you're watching everything going on on the horizon. Uh, but it doesn't have an aorist form. Instead, it uses adon, ado as its aorist form, and that's why we have edain there as our aorist. It also doesn't have a perfect form uh, where if you've seen something in the past with the result that you continue to see it, its perfect form actually is oida, 
O-I-D-A, oida, which is one of our great knowledge words. You've got gnosko, epigonosko, gnosis, and oida, the complete knowledge where you've seen it in the past, you continue to see it, you continue to behold it, you continue to know it, that's oida. So for those that uh, really like to pursue those word studies, we could do a lot more work on that, but I'm going to pass by it today. The signs of Jesus at point C, the signs of Jesus were not for their own sake. In other words, not just doing a miracle for the sake of, ooh, look at me, I can do miracles. They were not for their own sake, but were evidence of His paternal mission that God the Father had sent Him. How long has it been since a miracle-producing prophet has been sent to Israel? John the Baptist was a true prophet, but he didn't do any miracles. He didn't have to. (laughs) He didn't need the token, the sign, to say, you can trust my message because his message was, here's the Christ. There was the Christ. But a prophet like Isaiah, who 700 years ahead of time is going to say, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, that, that kind of a prophet, he needs tokens. He needs signs. He needs evidence to back up the fact that in 700 years this is going to take place. Because no one's going to be around that whole time to prove him wrong or prove him right. And he's not going to be around to be proven wrong or proven right. So the tokens and the signs are the evidence that God has indeed sent him. The message is trustworthy. The message is reliable. Now, John the Baptist didn't need those signs, didn't need those tokens because he produced the Christ. But Jesus himself is a prophet and Jesus himself has these tokens because, remember, his message is not just for the short term. He himself has messages that he delivers repeatedly that are 2,000 years and more into the future because he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about Second Advent. He's talking about things that, that still to this day, 2006 A.D., we're looking at as future prophetic messages. So he had many signs and tokens. We get the Pharisee confession of this in John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God, notice, as a teacher, for no one can do these signs, and there's Simeon in the plural, Simea, can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the, the signs themselves were indisputable, undeniable. None of the Pharisees were doing signs. (laughs) Here's Jesus. He's doing these signs. And the only conclusion Nicodemus can come to is that he's coming from the Father. That's the purpose for signs. That's the purpose for tokens, indicators. Now, later on, some other Pharisees said, no, 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 no. We can can find another reason for this. He's doing these by the power of Beelzebub. These aren't tokens from God the Father. He's doing works by the power of Beelzebub. And they could try to discredit what he was doing by their slander, by their blasphemy. Now, you can deny it all you want. It doesn't change the reality. You know, every atheist, that's a fool that says in his heart there is no God, doesn't change the reality of God's existence. God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So they were evidence of his paternal mission, John 3, 2, and they were instructive, instructive of his gift, that is, the Father's gift. John chapter 3 is the Father's gift. And we're told this in the purpose clause for the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, the signs themselves are designed to be instructive. 
You come to Bible class to be taught. Everything God does primarily is, has a teaching motive behind it, even our discipline. When you're in our divine discipline, it's supposed to be instructive. The signs and, and wonders, miracles, were supposed to be instructive. Not just, ooh, look at what he's doing, but learning from the content of the message that is given credibility by virtue of the sign and wonder that's done. Now, depending on who you're counting, there's 30 miracles or 40 miracles throughout the Gospels. But in the Gospel of John, there are only seven. Eight, if you count the resurrection, as the eighth and final miracle. And in John 20, verse 30, we're told there are many other signs. Therefore, many other signs, Semea, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. We're told that, you know, the whole world couldn't even contain the books that could be written. Right? That's the end of chapter 21. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. But here back in chapter 20 now, he did many other signs and they're not recorded for us in the Gospels. They were tokens, evidence of his divine mission. But these have been written. What are these? Well, the seven Simeon signs that John in his gospel records and he numbers them. He says this was the first of the signs when he numbers the the water to wine in chapter two. And and each of the seven times that, that gospel of John records a sign, it's listed as a sign. And there's seven of them, eight if you count the uh, the resurrection itself. Remember, this is the chapter where he's appearing to them and even doubting Thomas uh, says, my Lord and my God and and uh, and so some uh, John Nimala and a couple of others will count this chapter as the eighth, mainly because of the word other in verse 30. There were many other signs Jesus also performed. And so they look at that word other and they say, hmm, this event here in chapter 20 where a resurrected Christ is appearing to his disciples, that must be the eighth of the signs that the gospel of John details others don't include the resurrection appearance and they just count seven whichever way you want to do it the point here being though that these have been written whether these is seven or these is eight doesn't matter these have been written what john wrote in his gospel about these signs so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing you may have life in his name you can use the Gospel of John as a gospel tract. And there are companies that have done that. They produce entire little booklets of the Gospel of John you can hand to people. Not just a tract, but a, a whole little booklet containing the Gospel of John. And that the sequence of those miracles, of those signs, is designed to teach his deity, his person, his work, and, and uh, the content of, of what's necessary to lead to Christ. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's so much doctrine there in that one verse. I won't take the time to spell it out. But, I mean, you can, you can see right there in that verse, Jesus is the Christ. You realize that that contradicts uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, the Son of God. So Mormons can't accept that. Jehovah's Witnesses can't accept that. Muslims can't accept that. Every other cult in the world can't accept that. It just takes Jesus as a good man, you know, a basic moral teacher and so forth. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that believing you may have life in his name. The only provision for Zoe life is, uh, is faith in Christ.
All right. So that's what the signs were all about. Not to be lusted after, not to be craved after, not to uh, not to satisfy the whims of a hostile crowd, the crowd that would play a dirge and expect you to weep or play a little jig and expect you to dance. And, and, and the Lord pointed out that neither he nor John the Baptist were going to dance to their little games, to their little tunes that they like to play. All right, back now to Matthew 12. Observing a sign is not wrong, but craving additional signs after previous signs have been given indicates an evil, adulterous culture. Observing a sign is not wrong. And I should say, I guess I should put a footnote in there. For a Jewish believer in the Old Testament, observing a sign is not wrong. We probably ought to put uh, that note in there so that we don't confuse things with our present church age. Our present church age has no signs. Our present church age has no signs. Signs are for Israel. Signs are indicators along the way of prophets, messengers that are sent to Israel. The church has no signs. From the day we were started, from the day the church began, the church has been waiting for a rapture that could happen at any moment, and there are no signs. Ours is the age with no signs. Observing a sign is not wrong, but craving additional signs after previous signs have been given indicates an evil, adulterous culture. It's like going back to prayer and asking for a different answer after you've already gotten one answer. That was what Balaam did. He got the answer. No, you can't curse these people. And he told Balak, he said, well, just spend the night here. I'll, I'll go back and see if there's more. I'll go back and ask if, if there's another answer. Maybe God's changed his mind. Maybe, maybe the answer will be different this time. So if you've already ignored the previous sign, why would you be expected to be given another one? If you're already negative, if you're already uh, in, in such uh, reversion that you're not paying attention to the first sign, why get another one? An evil and adulterous generation. And we can think of a generation in terms of a culture. Each generation, of course, thinks that the one after them doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right? They dress weird. Their music is horrible. And that next generation is always just, I can't believe what's happening. And you, you know something? When they start having kids, they're going to say the same thing. <laughs> They're going to talk about, boy, I wish things could have been back in my generation or even my parents' generation. All right. find that interesting. But this is a use of generation. We still use it to this day. Christ used it here. It's a term that references the, the uh, state of culture in your day. What is craved? What is sought after? What is considered um, in vogue? What is considered uh, desirable? And that changes. From time to time, from culture to culture, from generation to generation. Listed for us here in, in Matthew 12, 39a, similar vocabulary in Luke eleven twenty nine. I'll give you the vocabulary here in a moment. But I find it interesting is that the terms that are used here, evil and adulterous, can be applied in a generation where external morality was huge. 
external morality was huge. These Pharisees would have never dreamed of having a mistress or getting involved in any kind of uh, uh, promiscuity or fornication or anything like that. They would never have even a hint of that. And yet Jesus Christ calls their generation evil and adulterous because of the spiritual reality of what's there, not the external deeds of what they do. All right, The term for evil, paneros, paneros, P-O-N-E-R-O-S, paneros. So subpoint A, the term for evil is paneros. Sometimes paneros is, uh, even though it's an adjective, referring to something that's intrinsically of no value. It's the opposite of, of agathos, the opposite of good. Here in this chapter, we had a contrast between them. You have good fruit, evil fruit. Good trees, evil, fruit, evil trees. And uh, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. If you put a the in front of Poniras, the evil one, that's a title for Satan. Satan is ha Poniras. He is the evil one. Right now, the whole world lies in the power of ha Poniras, the evil one. Others can be paneros. Others can be evil. A person can be evil. Angels can be evil. Laws can be evil. But the evil one, as a title, ha paneros, that's reserved for the devil himself. That's one of his titles. There's the opposite of agathos. It's the opposite of good. Agathos is what's intrinsically good, according to God's standard of goodness. And this is where we have to line it up because our human viewpoint looks at things and we say, oh, well, that's good. Feeding the poor, clothing the homeless, uh, you know, different things that can be done. Human viewpoint looks at some of those things and says, well, that's good. No, it's human good. But in God's eyes, it's paneros. It's evil. It's worthless. It has no value. He views all our righteousness as filthy rags. There's nothing good. There is no good thing. There is none who does good. No, not one. So when it comes to the agathos versus paneros standard, it's God's standard. And it's his absolute standard of righteousness. So here is a generation that has no goodness. It is not conformed to God's standard of righteousness. It's not received God's goodness imputed to them. It is not seeking after the things of God. But it has these other lovers that it seeks after. It is therefore by definition evil and adulteress. The term for adulteress under subpoint B, moikalis, M-O-I-C-H-A-L-I-S, moikalis, moi. I was looking up some different words that have the moi roots and some of the different names. Moira is a, is a woman's name. Moira. You ever know anybody named Moira? M-O-I-R-A, Moira. Anyway, that moi root is never good. In any language you put it into and wherever you cross the, the etymological barriers there. Anyway, moikalis is an adulteress. It's used as an adjective. Here it's used uh, as an adjective describing the nature of the generation. Typically, though, it's not an adjective. Typically, it's a noun. It's a noun. I mean, we... Occasionally in English we can do that. We can take an adjective. We can take a noun and make it an adjective, right? You know, tomboy. Isn't a tomboy is a noun? 
But if you'll use it to describe a person, it can be an adjective. If you say this girl, this daughter is tomboy, she's tomboyish or whatever, she is a tomboy. You're, you're taking an ad, a noun, making an ad, uh, a, uh, adjective out of it. And that's what happens here. This generation is an adulteress, but it takes the noun for adulteress and makes it an adjective to modify uh, and, and add flavor to the description of its evil. The reason why it's evil is because it's adulterous. It's seeking after these other gods, gods of their own pride, gods of their own self-exaltation, gods of their own um, pursuit, serving their father, the devil, the liar and the murderer from the beginning. So, of course, they're adulterous. They're not worshiping Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. And where it's used as an adjective, interesting, not only here, Matthew 12, 39, but a few chapters over in Matthew 16, same author, same uh, similar context. Again, it's Pharisees and Sadducees, and again, they want a sign. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. You got, they got these, these cliches, these stories. You know, we have them today. Red sky at night, sailor delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. That's, we got these, these uh, you ever do any boating? We get these cliches today. He says, you've got your own cliches. You think you can tell these things. Um, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. How many times have I got to keep telling you this? <laughs> you're going to get the sign of Jonah, and that's all you're getting. Pay attention on the third day. <laughs> all right? Because what, the message you need is salvation. Uh, Mark 8:38, I think, is a similar context, if not a direct parallel. Um, no, a little bit different. Here, um, talking about the cost of discipleship, if you want to come after him, you must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. You know, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is not fun games. And uh, denying self, you're not the issue. Taking up your cross, there will be difficulty you will suffer follow after christ whoever wishes to save his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it for what does it profit a man to gain his whole gain the whole world and forfeit his soul verse 38 whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels so that's a warning if a believer was to compromise their Christian walk, to be ashamed of their faith, to compromise with the world system and, and so forth, to cave in on an issue because everybody else is involved in whatever it is that they're doing. You participate with that adulterous and evil generation and uh, there's consequences at the judgment seat. All right, other terms if you want to pursue it. Moikos is the masculine as we say, moikalos is feminine. Reason being is, is generation is feminine. So they took the, the feminine adjective there. But the masculine is moikos. The verb is moikuo. To commit moikuo means to commit adultery. Either physical adultery 
of a married person uh, being unfaithful to their marriage, or spiritual adultery of a human being being unfaithful to the God who made him, the God who redeemed him, by following after other gods. Spiritual adultery. And, and obviously that's what's in view here. Now the term for crave, I thought I was going to put in under C, and I realized a little bit ago that I don't have a C there. So... We'll just look at it manually, and you can write it down in your notes for uh, craving a sign. Because we're left here with, all right, here's your Ganea, Panera, Kaimokala, Semeon, Epizeteo. Here's your Epizeteo right there. So there's your word for craving. And I wanted you to get that in your notes to notice. Um, We'll pull it up in the dictionary here so you can write it down. Epizeteo, E-P-I-Z-E-T-E-O, epizeteo. And it's like epithumia, it's like lust, um, where the, the search itself is not wrong. But it's what happens when it gets intensified and it gets twisted and it gets utilized in a wrong way. It's like lust, epithumao. We should have passions. We should have Thumas, we should have passion. You should have normal marital relations with your husband, with your wife. That's normal. That's what we're designed to do. But where that gets twisted, where it gets uh, intensified, it's inordinate or it's out of bounds or it's, it's placed in an improper setting, then it becomes lust. So proper passion becomes improper lust. When Thumao becomes epithumao. We get, we get epithumia for lust. Same thing here with seeking a sign. Now, zeteo by itself, if you take the epi off, zeteo is a, is a wonderful word. It means to seek. And we're told to seek. Seek and you will find. Ask and you will receive. Knock and it will be opened unto you. There's nothing, it's not a dirty word. Seeking is not a dirty word. And the concept of seeking a sign is valid. For Old Testament Jewish believers who had prophetic messages given to them, who had scriptures given to them, who were waiting for the Son of Man to be revealed, seeking a sign was appropriate. Anna was in the temple seeking a sign. Uh, Simeon was in the temple seeking a sign. John the Baptist uh, spent his whole ministry seeking a sign. And lo and behold, the dove descended and that, the heavens op apart, uh, opened. Waters parted. There was Jesus. He was seeking a sign. There's nothing wrong with seeking. But when they intensified it, you put the epi on it, epizeteo, and you've intensified it. And that's why I like the term craving that we find here in verse 39. Because as it gets brought across into English, in my mind, that terminology for craving shows you that, okay, this now has gone too far. This has gone too far. I might be hungry. I might be hungry for something. But if I'm actually craving it, I have to stop and ask myself, what's driving this desire? <laughs> you know, and if I don't get it, am I okay? But see, this craving, craving, got to have it, got to have it. And if you don't get it, you're not okay. See, you have withdrawals from not having what it is you're craving after, whether it's the alcoholic that's craving alcohol or it's the drug addict that's craving uh, you know, his next hit of drugs or whether it's the sex addict who's craving his next adultery or it's whatever it is that they're addicted to and they're craving. If they don't get what they're craving, real uh, damage, in their mind anyway, takes place. So, epizeteo. I wanted you to 
have that. And I didn't get it into, it was supposed to be subpoint C in the, uh, in the outline. I'll make sure we have it as subpoint C next week when we uh, get back into this text. All right, you want a Strong's number for Epizetao? We'll give you a Strong's number. I know there's an easy way to do that. Nineteen thirty-four. Wow, what a good year! All right, Epizetao number nineteen thirty-four. All right, Epizetao. So you'll never forget Epizetao if you have any attachment to the year nineteen thirty-four. All right. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, thirdly, third thing we want to get out of this. For the unbeliever, there's only one sign that matters. For the unbeliever, there's only one sign that matters. All these other signs, everything else you look at, is for the believer only. But the one sign that matters, the only thing that the unbeliever needs is to get saved. Why John was saying, these have been written so that you may believe. The one issue is salvation. If you try to, if you've got an unbeliever at work and, and you're trying to tell them all about, ooh, this great Daniel series that we're hearing and all about the world empires and Antichrist and the beast and all this other stuff, revived Roman Empire, and you, don't bother. Really, don't bother. That's pearls before swine. That's taking what is holy and throwing it to the dogs. They need the gospel. They don't have the spiritual mindedness to apprehend this other stuff anyway, so why, why uh, confuse things? Now, for believers, you bet. For those that need to be oriented to God's plan and program, absolutely. I think it's a huge benefit. We're told it's a blessing for believers to study prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads and pays attention to the words of this book, we're told. Revelation has promises for reading it. Promises a blessing. But those are for believers. The unbeliever? Unbeliever needs one thing. They need the gospel. It's the only thing they need. Gospel teaching. And so Jesus says, you don't need signs. The only sign you need is the sign of Jonah. And what he's saying here in communicating this is he's going to die and go to the cross. He's going to be in the grave. On the third day, he's going to rise again. And the picture of Jonah, the book of Jonah in your Bible that tells that story is going to be played out before your very eyes and you need to respond to this gospel message as as it becomes clear to you. So no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Here's this nothing but, meaning the only, the only, the only sign, the only one you need to be concerned about is getting saved. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or the sea monster or the creature of the deep, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's going to physically die and his body will be in the earth for that period of time. But just as Jonah didn't stay there forever, that body is coming out. It is an empty tomb. It is an empty tomb to this day. It's an empty cross and it's an empty tomb I don't know why. I get bugs. I don't mind crosses. I got a, Yeah, there's a cross right there, isn't there? I don't mind crosses, so long as it's an empty cross. These Catholic paintings and stuff, and they show him hanging there and with a crown of thorns. And I guess artists have to do what artists do, but I, I just don't like it. 
I'm thankful that he was there, but he's not there anymore. It is finished. And they pulled him down. It's an empty cross and an empty tomb. All right, the sign of Jonah. Uh, Not only was that episode such that it provides the teaching prophetically 700 years later, but it also... 750 years later, but it also provides a context for which these Gentile believers, remember the men of Nineveh who repented were all Gentiles, Gentile dogs, Assyrians of all things, the most despicable Gentile Semitic people you could think of, and they're going to be in glory. <laughs> they got saved. And so at the great white throne judgment, when the, all of these Pharisees are standing there and these men of Nineveh are standing there glorified, what a contrast. We're going to talk about that. What is the speaking role that glorified believers will have? We, we know that Christ is the judge, but we also know that there are other judges as well. We are also judges. There are multiple thrones. Now, he is the judge on the great white throne, but there are other thrones. We have thrones as the bride, as the church. But here we're told in a context where even Gentiles from their stewardship, even Gentiles are going to have a speaking role. They're going to be called upon to testify, as it were, when a subpoena gets issued and testimony is then um, compelled. And the men of Nineveh will stand up. So they're not, uh, they're not in the position of judges. They're not on thrones. They're not in a ruling capacity or a judicial capacity, but they are commanded to stand up to offer testimony. Likewise, the Queen of the South. I've got notes on that coming up. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, the parallel on this, Luke 11. Flip over there for a moment. Now, the... Uh, Luke 11 is interesting. As you're looking at Luke 11, we've got, we're going to deal with verses 24 through 26. And that's the unclean spirit leaving and coming back and things get worse when he comes back because he brings friends with him. Um, that, that passage comes early and then the passage of a, of a wicked generation comes late. The order is, is inverted between Matthew's record and Luke's record. I think we're comfortable with that if you're not comfortable with that talk to me after class but then we get to verses 29 through 32 and we got the context of this here um just as jonah became a sign to the ninevites he was a sign to the ninevites but 750 years later he's still a sign he's still a sign he now he's a sign to the pharisees see how that works it's like the blood of abel the blood of righteous abel still speaks he was a sign way back in Genesis 4, continues to be a sign to our very day. So will the Son of Man be to this generation, and it goes on. And then the men of Nineveh, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember, as we talked about, God knows what it takes to bring about this repentance. He knows what miracle is necessary, what message is necessary, what messenger is necessary. And that, uh, you know, a Jonah who was frail and disobedient, rebellious and everything else, prideful, angry. He was sufficient to bring about a great repentance among the Assyrians. But Jesus Christ, far greater than Jonah ever was, 
and they're face to face with him. And they're accusing him of all these blasphemies and they're rejecting his message and they, they want more, more signs, more miracles. You're not doing enough. <laughs> well, if Jesus Christ isn't doing enough in his ministry, who, who, who is? Whoever would? So for the unbeliever, there's only one sign that matters. Their need, their one need is for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's all they need. Now, we've got to spend some time and we don't have time at this hour to do it. But I want to spend some time next week on the three days and the three nights. Because the sign of Jonah indicates that the story of Jonah is typology for Jesus Christ. It's typology for Jesus Christ. We'll go back and we'll look at Jonah. We'll look at the story there. We'll come back. Now we'll look at Matthew 12 and we're going to see the reality. Jonah was a type. He was a picture, a shadow, a type of what was to come. And... The expression, some people got really, really worked up over the expression, three days and three nights. And they view that as a contradiction to the expression on the third day. And they get really, really weird about it. And so if maybe you haven't encountered these folks, but maybe you will, and, and you're going to want to know, well, how do I give them an answer? Because they're going, to tell, they're going to tell you that after three days and after three nights means that he can't be raised until the fourth day. Because it's not until the fourth day that he will have completed three days and three nights. And so in their mind, this forms a massive contradiction. And we're going to demonstrate how the phrases are actually equivalent phrases. By saying three days and three nights, the expression means on the third day. And that was a feature of their language. That was a feature of, uh, of these passages. And if, unless you are hostile and you want to find contradictions, you don't have a hang-up with it. But some people will. So we'll spend some time on that. He is raised on the third day. By the way, I'm a Friday crucifixion guy that, uh, and Sunday resurrection guy. So uh, there are other views out there that hold to a Thursday crucifixion. And there's even a, a view out there that holds to a Wednesday crucifixion. And so, uh, well, we'll deal with that and we'll spend, it'll take a little bit of time to deal with, but I think it's important. I'm glad that we can do that in, uh, in the context of this class. Any questions? Anything that can't wait for tonight? All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you for the blessing we have, Father, to, to be legitimate in the things that we seek to be humble in the questions that we ask. And Father, I pray that we might not plunge into the arrogance and pride of the Pharisees who uh, called him teacher, but they meant no respect by it. They uh, asked him questions, but they, they weren't looking for real answers. They were looking to condemn him. Uh, they, they demanded things of him, Father, and, and yet were never satisfied by anything he ever brought forth. So, Father, I pray that you would work in each one of us to be humble in every regard, to accept the message that you provide for us, to accept the work assignment you provide for us, to walk with endurance, uh, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, understanding, Father, that you have not called us to choose our own uh, course, but to be faithful in the course that you have determined. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.